You've entered the Prosperity Dimension. A dimension of sci-fi adventure. A dimension of small biz excitement. A dimension where Nicole Fendi shows you how to build your profits and have a swashbuckling good time. And now, here's Nicole Fendi. Welcome into the Prosperity Dimension. I'm your host, Nicole Fendi. Today we're joined by Jeff Tidball. He is an award-winning game writer, designer, and producer, as well as the Chief Operating Officer of Atlas Games. His credits include co-writing with Will Hindmarch, Eternal Lies for Trail of Cthulhu, designing Pieces of Eight, the Fantasy Flight Games edition of Horus Heresy, and the forthcoming Doctor Who Time Clash card game. Plus, he's willed into existence with Kenneth Height, the social mini-game band or album. You can visit Jeff online at jefftidball.com. On Twitter, he's at jefftidball. You can see all that in our show notes as well. And now I want to welcome Jeff to the Prosperity Dimension. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Nicole. Thanks so much. Oh, we're really excited to have you here. And I'm going to begin with one that for all of our listeners who've ever been gamers, <laughs> you are living the dream. So I have to start with this question. You started while you were in college. You began making money as a gamer while you were still in school. What advice would you give any aspiring designer? And by any, I mean of any age, because it's never too soon or too late to decide you want to make some money off being a gamer if they wanted to turn their passion into a profession. Yeah, sure. Well, so I get this question a lot, actually. It's very easy for students to find people on the Internet now, and lots of high school courses and college courses, especially career development classes, send students out to find people who are working in the career that they want to be in and Mm -hmm. ask them questions. And that is always on the list of questions. And so the thing that I think is the best advice for people who want to design games is that they should just start right now designing games Mm -hmm. because there's no barrier to doing that. One of the other things that I've done is I went to film school and a really insightful thing that one of the filmmakers came in and told us as film students is that a huge advantage of wanting to be a screenwriter that also I think applies exactly as much to game design is that you don't need anyone's permission to start and you don't need somebody to hire you to start. So say you want to grow up and be a film director well, somebody's kind of got to hire you to do that, or at the very least, there's got to be a script already. And so it is, to a certain extent, something that you have to have someone's blessing or permission to do. Hmm. But there is nothing that stops you or I from, you know, when we're done talking here, opening up a word processing window and just starting to write screenplays or design games. You know, there's just no barrier like that. And the best way to learn how to design games is really just to start doing it and then play the games that you've designed with other people and see what they think and design more games. So Mm -hmm. that also has the magnificent benefit of teaching you whether you actually like it or not. (laughs) That's a great point. There's a big difference between playing a game and designing a game. Sure, and it's sort of one of the cliches about 
people who would like to be writers or novelists, uh -huh. so few of them actually ever write anything. And so there's this idea that there are a lot of people who want to be writers up until the point where they actually write, right? Like they like want to have <laughs> been writers, not that they actually want to be writers. Right. And like, that's fine. They're not terrible people or anything like that. And you can make a wonderful hobby, I suppose, of attending symposiums on writing and buying magazines about writing and reading blogs about writing. And I guess that's just sort of a different hobby than actually being a writer. But that's a little bit farther afield. But what I tell people is just to start designing games. And even if what you want to do is design digital games, mm -hmm. there are enough tools floating around that you can, honest to God, just go start designing games and no one can stop you from doing it. And you're not going to make money at it right away, but that's fine because you're trying to learn how to do it. You're trying to learn if you like to do it and you're trying to get feedback that improves you on doing it. Right. Oh, you, there's a treasure trove of different things we could talk about in there. I'm going to highlight that nothing is stopping you. I love that. You don't need permission. And you're right as far as people who say they're going to write. I now have two books under my belt live that people can buy. And it's interesting the distinction between people talking about working on a book and people who put a book out, you know, who made it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and then absolutely. you start a whole new process of marketing the book. Yes. You know, you also talked about your MFA. Now, you have an MFA in screenwriting from USC, correct? Yes. Let's talk about why screenwriting versus something else, and how did that help you both in game design and just in business in general? Yeah, sure. Well, that's an interesting story because I went to film school because I intended to leave the gaming business forever, huh. which obviously <laughs> totally didn't work. But in the late 90s, it looked like really bad times were coming for tabletop games really all the way around because that was before the Euro gaming renaissance, right? That was mm, yeah. Settlers of Catan had come out by then, uh -huh. but there was not a gigantic freight train of commerce behind that. And it looked like World of Warcraft was just going to eat our lunch for every other traditionally published RPG. It looked like a really bad time for the next 20 years to have anything that approached a sustainable career making tabletop games, which was what I loved to do. I decided in seventh grade that I was going to be a professional game designer. Wow. Because I loved D&D &D so much. I played that yeah. for the first time in sixth grade and then found all of these other games that were just like it. I just love it. So I had learned a lot of skills related to those things and kind of knew how to write that kind of stuff. And I just took a look around at other jobs that use those same skills, but where perhaps you could make some money and screenwriting seemed like a relatively clear path forward. And so I was able to get into, you know, it's a really, really good film school. That's a world-class film school at USC. And so, you know, left gaming forever in order to do that. And, you know, it turns out that there are lots and lots of people who would like to be screenwriters. And that is a hard business to break into, especially if you've got any kind of a monthly nut. You know what I mean? Like if you have got a other means to support you while you're trying to do that, or if you're mm -hmm. willing to live in a closet in North Hollywood until the end of time, until you make it or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I tried that for six years and was not completely devoid of success, but the film business is a rough, rough, rough place to make it. And luckily I had gaming to fall back on. I was already working part-time and then full-time back in the gaming business by the time my wife and I moved back to Minneapolis from LA. So wait, what would you take away? Because it seems, and we're going to talk a little more about this in a, in a bit about the gumshoe system and, and the 
the idea of solving things rather than finding them. How has screenwriting just helped you in business? I mean, it, oh, clearly sure. there's a huge impact, right? I mean, yes, it's not your primary thing anymore, but you still have writing that you're doing, and it still has these other effects. How do you see it playing into being successful in business? Sure, yeah, I totally failed to answer your question about that. Okay. But I think, I, so the thing that I really learned the most is how to pitch an idea, mm. especially a dramatic idea, very succinctly in a way that piques interest and mm. makes someone eager to know more. Because that's not screenwriting per se, but part of the training that USC gives potential screenwriters is how to sell their ideas to the marketplace that buys those things. Mm, interesting. And so we spent a lot of time on what that marketplace looks like, right? Every screenwriter essentially is a freelance writer who goes to different production companies and tries to get them to buy their ideas. Mm. And even in the places where that's not strictly speaking true, like if you're a staff writer on a TV show, you're still day to day involved in the process of describing your idea for what should happen in an episode of the show that you work on or pitching your idea for what should happen in this particular scene of a show that you're working on. And it's a really, really critical skill to be able to inform someone of why your creative idea is interesting and why they should invest in, you know, either buying your game book or stocking your game in their store if they're a retailer or picking it up to distribute Ooh, it if they're a distributor or any of those yep. things. So we're just constantly, constantly involved in describing either creative ideas that we already have because we've made the game and we want to sell it or games that we would like to make, or I design games places other than Atlas, so pitching an idea to a new publisher for a game I want to do, or like the Cubicle 7 guys who hired me to design the Doctor Who Time Clash game, they came to me and they said, we saw your presentation at the Gamma Trade Show, we think you might have something intelligent to say about this, why don't you bring us back an idea that you might have for this? So it's even pitching work that is already likely to come your way, but right. kind of confirming that or describing your idea in a way that does not make them bored. Yes. So what's the top takeaway? Because as you're talking through this, I'm nodding vigorously. Of course, neither you nor the audience can see that. I'm nodding <laughs> vigorously going, yes, you can have great ideas, but if nobody's interested in them, they're not going to be very useful and they're not going to make you any money. So what's like a top takeaway, you know, when you look back and you look at when, let's use the Doctor Who time clash, just as an example, since you brought it up and I have to admit, I'm like, ooh, Doctor Who, <laughs> very intrigued. Sure. What's something that you used, a skill, or what was your top takeaway? Like, I know I have to do X when I pitch this. What's the big thing that has to be in a pitch to make sure people don't fall asleep or walk away? I think that it's really important to strip away all of the things that are not essential to understanding the idea and then to have the discipline to just not talk about them, Ooh. right? Because there is all kinds of depth in a novel or a movie or a game that just are not necessary for you to know about in order to kind of understand what the very most key things about them are. Right. In film school, a log line is the name for kind of a one-sentence description of a film, and it's very hard to describe a whole film in a sentence, but it's possible to do it. And if you craft that log line well, 
it makes people interested in it. And so that's what I think is key, is understanding that very central kernel of whatever it is that you're trying to present and then just shutting up about the rest of it. I love this. I love what you explained about the idea of stripping it down, too. It's so easy when we're excited about something to want to go on and on and on because we're convinced the more we talk about it, the more people will listen when the opposite actually happens. It really does. Fascinating. And I use that in my, like, just even in describing my business. And I always tell people, have a one-sentence description about what you do because if your right people will be intrigued and your wrong people will walk away and you'll save time and energy. And also one of the things that you can do is just start testing that out on people because those log lines or kernel descriptions, you don't have to tell it the same way to everyone until the end of time. (laughs) And this is a really interesting thing that we actually discover at Atlas after we have made a game. Then we go out and do a whole bunch of consumer conventions where we try to sell it to actual people who like to buy and play games. So we were just at Origins. We will be at Comic-Con and Gen Con coming up. But when we release a game, it's almost like we learn how to talk about it again because now we're talking to customers about it and we have to say the thing that will make them know whether they want to buy it or not. And it's interesting how even that is a little bit different from the way we talked about it internally or the way we heard about it from its designer that made us want to publish it. So, And like that's just a process of pitching it to 200 people over the course of a weekend and seeing what is interesting to people and what is not interesting to people and say more of the first thing and less of the last thing. Right. I want to reemphasize this. So you call it a log line, L-O-G line? Yeah. Okay, and this is brilliant because I think you also are pointing out we have a different log line depending on our audience. When you're sure. pitching to the, you know, in your case, the company who might pick up a game or the designer or to the end consumer and that we shouldn't feel constrained by the first one we come up with. Yeah, not at all. And that's one of the great things that they recommend writers do when they're thinking about a project to work on is to not ever, like, hide that in a basket and only tell people about it once you've written a full draft of the whole thing because what you will discover (laughs) is once you start talking to your relatives or your writers group or whoever it is that you talk to things about like the things that they appear to be interested in are probably what's interesting about your story and so you can actually make your creative work better by exposing it to people constantly as you're working on it now let's talk about the scary factor of that for a minute I know, especially my more recent book, which is the title of this podcast, The Prosperity Dimension, I felt very nervous going out. That wasn't the original name, by the way. It was totally different. If I pitched it, I did exactly what you're saying. When I first started, it was called What's in It for Me? I can't even imagine that being the title now, but that's what it was when I started, my working title. Right. But it's scary. It's really because it's your baby. I mean, you know, I think everyone feels that way to some extent. Our creative projects... We care about them. So how do you get past that kind of fear of of putting it out there before it's perfect? I think part of it is just doing it a lot. Mm. And maybe that's one of the reasons. I haven't thought about this specifically before, but maybe that's one of the reasons why I think it's good advice if you want to be a game designer to just start designing games. Because that means that you will already have described your 21st game ideas to people who don't matter. Or, you know, like, not who don't matter. They're not bad people. But they're not, they're not in, a, in a position to hire you right. or not, right? Much better that you have already 
pitched a hundred games to people who couldn't have hired you to make them anyway. Right. So that, you know, you've just gotten over that idea that it will be a massive personal failing if right. they don't like it. Right. But it's hard. It's really hard. I think that the hardest part for me is I want it to be perfect before it goes anywhere and accepting that it's not going to be perfect and then being willing to truly listen to the advice. Because when I first, I had hired a strategist to help me with positioning because who's ever done a science fiction business book that's illustrated novel components. And so I had this strange idea and I was very nervous about putting it out there because it was very important to me. And the first feedback I got on the original title, which looking back was terrible, <laughs> but at the time I was so upset. Sure. And what advice do you give? Because for me, it was just, yeah, you just do it. You just do it and accept. Is it about you or is it about making this happen? That's how I got through it was to say, okay, is it about making something happen or is it about my ego? Sure. And there's not, I don't know that there's a shortcut. That's great advice. And that's what I would tell people, but also you can't tell someone that it will be fine and then just have it be fine for them. They've just kind of got to grapple with feedback that is not very pleasant to receive. And in grappling with that feedback, kind of get to the point where you're all right with it. And so eventually you get to the point where you put out a draft of something and it doesn't come back to you covered with red (laughs) ink and frowny faces. And then, like, that freaks me out. Like, I know that there is something wrong with this. I just wrote it. It has not been revised yet even once. So don't be a coward, reviewer of my work. I need you to tell me where this is going. And if I don't get feedback that is negative in places, then that's kind of a sign that the wrong person's looking at it mm-hmm. and they don't feel like they're empowered to say what they actually think or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It takes a lot of trust on both sides to do yes. that. Yes. I love this. I'm going to start using Logline. I love it. And my last piece of advice to our listeners is, yes, your creative work or your business, whatever it is, whether you're looking at a creative work or just in regular, you know, day-to-day business, yes, your life and your work is complex. But that one sentence, that log line, just like Jeff was saying, and I cannot agree more, is the key to moving forward. Less is more. It truly is. So I'm going to switch tracks a little bit here. Jeff, I'll admit I'm old school D&D as well. Grew up on the original Dungeons and Dragons system. I always used to play paladins. (laughs) That was my my go-to character. (laughs) And then later I learned the vampire system and I did the GMing. I was on the other side. For the vampire uh-huh. system. Now, you mentioned this new, I guess it's not new, it's new to me because I'm old school and this is newer. Is there something called the gum shoe system? Yeah, that's Robin D. Laws is a one of the most phenomenal and prolific RPG designers in the history of ever. And this is his mechanical system for role-playing, and it's been expressed in a couple of different core systems now. Originally, it came out in a game called the Esoterrorists, which was mm. kind of an X-Files-like game. Oh, cool. It's the modern day, and you are tasked with going out to kind of investigate and solve supernatural problems. But then Ken Height adapted it for... Lovecraftian role-playing with Trail of Cthulhu, Uh and there is a future police procedural version called Mutant City Blues, Uh and there are other games that use this basic engine. But the engine is premised on a kind of a brilliant insight about role-playing and investigative scenarios, and it solves this problem. The problem is that when you're investigating a thing in an RPG, traditionally 
there comes a point where the player characters have to find some clue, and whether they find the clue or not depends on how well they roll on some kind of test. Right off, and that's a perception test. Do we Uh find the critical clue? And if that roll is failed, if you were being strict, the adventure would be over. Right, which would be terrible. Exactly. And so that creates a great deal of burden for the game master who, when the party fails that role, has to figure out how to have the adventure not be over. Because everyone still wants to continue having fun in this investigative scenario. And so that's disaster. And I don't know that it had ever occurred to anyone in such stark terms that all investigative scenarios were broken in that way. Hmm. And how much stress it put on GMs to route around the correct play of their own games. But so what Gumshoe does is it just says, this is a game about investigating things, and our investigating player characters are competent, and so always, and without any deviation, if they go to the scene where there is a clue, they will find it. So, in a CSI-style game, if they go to the scene of the crime, and there is DNA evidence, and we bring along our player character who knows how to find DNA evidence, Uh when he or she walks into the room, it is a foregone conclusion that they find that evidence. Uh And so... I had no idea how much stress as a GM I was carrying around prior to playing Gumshoe about what I would do if that evidence didn't get found. So the magnificent thing is, is that that frees up the entire game to be about the dramatic decisions that the investigating characters make once they have found the thing. And so the very best Gumshoe scenarios are about dramatic dilemmas or moral dilemmas Mm -hmm. or even logistical dilemmas that arise from the fact that you have found this clue and now there are forking paths about what you do with it. So if we prosecute this person who committed this crime, what terrible things will happen to their family members in whom we're emotionally invested? Or does it turn out that the perpetrators of this crime are the leaders of our organization? Are we willing to make our organization fall apart in order to do justice in this one scenario or whatever? But it frees these investigative scenarios to be dramatic instead of procedural. Hmm. And it's just great. This is fascinating. Thank you for sharing this. Now I'm going to go, now I'm going to have to go get some of this because I'm so excited. And I see a couple really interesting parallels into general business. And the first is and you're right because I've sat in the GM chair as well and as you were describing this fatal flaw if they can't find the specific clue or whatever and yes it's this it's oh my goodness it's so stressful and until Gumshoe was created there was this fatal flaw no one was even really acknowledging or talking about and yet someone found it they fixed it and they created a whole new system for it right and you think about in business if you sometimes need to step back and say, is there a fatal flaw here nobody's looking at or talking about? And if I can fix it, how successful could I be fixing that fatal flaw? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it really does require a special insight even to be able to see that there is that flaw in something that everybody else just takes for granted. Yes. We all take it for granted that it is a horrible experience to wade into an inbox with 500 messages in it. It seems like nobody is even trying to solve that problem at this point. <laughs> right. But, you know. So if someone does, you know, call me. <laughs> sure. And I think probably there are a bunch of 
people who are out there chewing their fingers off listening to this because they believe that they have solved that problem through their product or through their fantastic seminar or whatever. So that's not probably a very good example of something that nobody can see that there's a problem with, but it illustrates a class of problems that people just assume are insoluble and carry on with. Yes, don't take those as assumptions. Don't don't take those assumptions as, Earth isn't flat. (laughs) And we just kind of assume it is and nobody questions it. So I want to play a little game with you for a minute now. And you said you're going to be at Gen Con, and so am I. I'm very excited. I've never been before. So for those those of you who are listening, Gen Con happens every August in Indianapolis. It's always been there, right, Chuck? It's always Uh, been there? No, it was actually oh. in Milwaukee for many, many years. Oh. And before that, at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is where it started. Once it got to the point of being any reasonable size, it was in Milwaukee. But my first Gen Con was in Milwaukee, and I went I attended Gen Con there for maybe 10 years before Milwaukee was just too small for it. Wow, I didn't know that. So I learned something, too. I thought it was I was in Indianapolis. <laughs> I do know that last year there were over 60,000 unique visitors to Gen Con. So it's a huge event. Four days. Yes. And it's all about gaming. So I'm really excited. I want to play a little game with you. And I'm going to encourage all the listeners to play this and think about, listen to Jeff's answer, and then think about your own business. I want you to imagine you're at Gen Con. And, okay, you know, suspension of disbelief here. An alien has just shown up at Gen Con. And they've landed right in front of you. And they've decided you are the point of first contact. Now, this is a friendly alien. This is not, you know, you're talking Star Trek first contact here. It's not the board, okay? <laughs> I realized after I said first contact, that might be taken the wrong way. Not the board. They're friendly. No, I have an alien. I have a friendly alien. <laughs> you have a friendly alien. And they've landed in the middle of Gen Con, and they've turned to you and said, what is this? How would you explain that to them? Like the idea of gaming and just the whole concept behind why people are there. I would tell them that it's a giant meeting of people who love games doing the things that they love about that. Mm. How would you describe a game? Well, that's rough, I guess, because, (laughs) well, that is just rough because there are so many activities and products that are sold at Gen Con that don't conform to the traditional idea of what a game is, right? Whether it's a contest or something like that. Thinkers about games and designers of games tie themselves up in knots trying to define what games are. (laughs) Right, but is it important that it's competitive? Well, not really, because then you've got to put most role-playing games outside of that. I don't know that I've got a more insightful definition of that than everybody else has got. I guess I'd say that it's an interactive pastime to our alien. There we Um, go. I like that. One that is not necessarily digital. I think that I would say that Gen Con doesn't exclude video games, but is not about video games. So I think we have... Most of us in the hobby business have taken to calling them maybe tabletop games Mm. to distinguish them from apps and console games and computer games and things like that. Right. I like to do this experiment with people because when we have to step back and explain something to an alien where there might be only one or two points of congruence with them, it helps us relook. And in some ways, you know, we're talking about that fatal flaw and seeing things. Sometimes we see things that we missed before because now we have to explain it to someone who suddenly they don't have all the assumptions and background that we have. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, unfortunately, we're running out of time here, Jeff, but I want to briefly talk about 
band or album i went out and looked and just so you all know band you can go to band or album.com that will also be in our show notes and okay my first book is how to be a finance rock star so who doesn't love guitar picks and anything to do with bands just really quick tell us about this new project it looks like you're just about to launch it you've done a kickstarter campaign and it's about to come out yeah so this is a really interest this is actually an interesting business thing to talk about as well it is a brand new game that is 10 years old and is perhaps even (laughs) older than that so ken height and i have kind of well haven't been working on it for 10 years because long stretches of time passed where nobody did anything about it but back when there was a satellite gen con god it all ties together so there (laughs) used to be a gen con in los angeles oh okay i didn't know that there was a small satellite and, and it didn't really succeed there so they stopped doing it after three or four years but ken mentioned that there was this just conversational game that revolved around the truism that any given word or phrase in English or any language we suppose is either the name of a band or is the name of an album (laughs) but it's not both and that the reason that this works is because nearly everyone with common cultural assumptions can mostly agree that any given word or phrase is one or the other but not both right and so you can sort of play a conversational game based on discussions of that Mm-hmm. So, 10 years ago, it was not remotely clear that there was any way to make that into a physical product or compel anyone to buy it or really anything like that. And so, we kind of thought about how to do that a little bit back at that time because obsessed is probably not too strong a word with this idea that you can do that with English and that most people will agree on it. So, I just thought it was very interesting. And Ken would have certainly just let it go as an interesting thing to talk about will hang out. But I was really interested in how you could make more people aware of that and perhaps make a product that you could sell that dovetailed in with that. And so what it really took is waiting because when we did Pieces of Eight at Atlas, the reason that that game didn't do as well as we wanted is because we couldn't figure out how to manufacture collector coins in a way that made any kind of commercial sense. And so Pieces of Eight was just too expensive for the kind of game that it was. But within the last couple of years, places like Campaign Coins and their competitors have figured out how to make these collector coins for gamers in a way that's cost-effective. So that was one missing piece. And frankly, the idea that there should be coins involved in this game at all as the way to adjudicate play was sort of a missing piece. So that got sorted out somewhere in there. And then the other missing piece was Kickstarter, or crowdfunding generally, Mm -hmm. because certainly hobby game retailers, if we had created all of the stuff that is part of the Kickstarter and had just, instead of sending it out to crowdfunding backers, had tried to push it into the traditional distribution and retail chains, no one would have bought it. We would have printed and cast a boatload of these things that would then sit in our garages until the end of time. Right. But since crowdfunding existed, we could make sure that our production run was the right size and we could get people interested in it before making that investment. And, you know, it could well have turned out that nobody was interested in that, and then we could have just not done it. Right. But so it was a business idea that sort of just sat around until other things happened that made it possible. Well, there are, again, a ton of great lessons in there, and I think one of them being, if an idea's time isn't now, it's okay to put it on the back burner and revisit it. It doesn't have to go away forever. 
I have a friend who's a very creative business person and artist, and she calls them her zombie graveyard ideas. <laughs> she puts them yeah. in the zombie graveyard, and then she lets them come back to life later, which I love I, that whole imagery. <laughs> I think that's great, and I think that it's really smart, because you can really make yourself very unhappy if you pursue those things whose time is not yet. I worked for a software startup when I lived in L.A. that was trying to make a game for mobile handsets before mobile handsets could really do anything mm. at all. Uh-huh. And that game that we were working on, I think, could have been extremely successful had it come three years later when Facebook was a platform for a million other games like that, right? All right. of the Zenga... It was kind of a precursor of all of the Zenga games that really uh, succeeded. And it would be delusional to assume that that game would have been as successful because there were other things that we were doing wrong also. But it didn't really even have a chance to succeed uh-huh. because the hardware couldn't do it right. at the time. So I encourage everyone to also consider their own zombie graveyard for ideas. Yeah, and, just I mean, keep a box under your desk and put them in there. <laughs> I'm going to give that link one more time if you want to check this out. It's really neat. Bandoralbum.com for Jeff Tidball. And you can also find Jeff at jefftidball.com. These will all be in the show notes as well. Jeff, I could talk to you all day. I love having you on as a guest. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thanks so much, Nicole. We can talk more at Gen Con about all this stuff. Yes, I will be at Gen Con. Also, you can sign up. I am doing a class on how to profit from self-publishing, and that includes game publishing, as well as I will be selling my new book there, The Prosperity Dimension, A Small Biz Sci-Fi Adventure. And you can, if you go to scifibiz.com right now, you can download the first chapter for free. That's right. Get in on Captain Brenna Rain's adventures at scifibiz.com. Until next time, remember, the prosperity dimension is always with you.